Well, good morning. Welcome again to another year of this glorious event where we get to pause from all of our pre-Christmas craziness just to remember the reason for the season. So let's pause and pray. Dear Lord God, we um, entrust to you this time. Thank you for the opportunity just to rest, to come here to enjoy this beautiful setting, to enjoy this beautiful food. And we ask, Lord, that now you would take my words, imperfect as they are, flawed as they are, and we ask that they would turn them into your beautiful and true word, that they would be words that give glory and honor to Jesus Christ. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, so if you've been coming to this event every year for a while, I don't know if you've noticed this, or if you're new, now you'll know. Um, but every year, the Women's <coughs> Ministry Committee, which really, um, and really by the Women's Ministry Committee, I mean Elizabeth Sharman, <laughs> she gives me a topic to work with. Um, and this is what's been going on for 10 years. Um, she'll give a topic to the speaker. And it's usually something cute and Christmassy. Candy canes, snowflakes sleigh bells, Christmas trees, um, and it's usually something that the speaker's job is then to tie in to the baby in the manger and the meaning of the baby in the manger. And so for me, every year, this my third year of speaking, my fourth year of attending, I think about it a lot the way I think about this game that we used to play when I was in um, college with all of my theater friends, and the game is called Six Degrees of Separation from Kevin Bacon. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever played this game, but it comes, I did a little research on it, and I found out that this game came about because of some theories that people were researching about social networks way back at the beginning of the 20th century, believe it or not, around World War I and World War II. They were thinking that the world was growing smaller, and that you could, there was this theory that you could connect any person in the world with any other person in the world by no fewer than five connections in a chain. So-and-so knows, so-and-so knows, so-and-so knows, so-and-so knows, so-and-so, which is really mind-boggling. Then when you think about Facebook, I bet we could track this pretty easily now. Well, so this concept was made famous by one of my favorite playwrights named John Guare, and then all of these theater kids turned it into a game surrounding Kevin Bacon because he's been in so many films, 83 I think now at this point, that you can track one actor in Hollywood to Kevin Bacon through no fewer than five connections. So if you say so-and-so was in Mystic River with Kevin Bacon and then that person was, I didn't do this for you today, you'll have to play the game on your own, but then so-and-so was in Footloose with Kevin Bacon, you'll, or so-and-so was in this movie with someone else and this movie with someone else, you'll make it eventually back to Kevin Bacon. Um, it's a small world phenomenon. And so this whole idea of this chain of connections is something that I've thought about when trying to connect something random and Christmassy that doesn't seem to have anything to do with Jesus to our Lord and Savior. So my task this year, if you weren't sure what my clue is, um, you could look at your name tags. Um, my task this year is to look at the sugar plum fairy from the Nutcracker Ballet and to help us understand something about Jesus Christ. Six connections or less, right? Let's see how we do. 
Well, so what in the world are sugar plums? I bet none of you know what sugar plums are. I didn't know. I had to look it up and find out. I always thought, and it, a lot of people today are misguided enough to think that they're actually candied plums. That would make sense, right? But in the early 19th century, um, sugar plums are named not so much for what they're, um, for what the flavor is, but for their shape. And so think, just think about "Twas the Night Before Christmas," that poem written in 1822. "Twas the night before Christmas when all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. The children were nestled all snug in their beds while visions of sugar plums danced in their heads. What in the world does that mean? I always thought about it afterwards. I thought the poem came after the Nutcracker Ballet, but it didn't. I thought the poem was about all those lovely ballerinas that I had dancing in my head um, as I would go to see the Nutcracker Ballet. Well, no, sugar plums are actually these incredible sweets from the 19th century. Not actually plums, but the, according to the candy, self-proclaimed candy professor, what a great title, sugar plums signify everything sweet and delectable and lovely. They came um, not from plums, but it was this idea where they would take confectioners in the 19th century by hand, would take something small like a seed or a nut, and then they would spin, or what they called it, pan, a sugar coating around it. And panning sugar, pan sugar coating is like what's on the outside of an M&M. Or if you're a Jawbreaker fan, it's every layer in an amazing gobstopper. Um, it's that kind of hard candy coating that's surrounding something on the inside. And so these sugar plums were made by hand laboriously. So much time and care was taken, and so they were a treat that only the very wealthy could afford. So um, for children to dream of them, this was the king of sweets. This was the queen of sweets to be able to afford to eat a sugar plum, uh, um, gobstopper in the shape of a plum. So then when we get to the Nutcracker Ballet, doesn't it make more sense then about the sugar plum theory? I remember seeing the Nutcracker Ballet here my first year in Alabama in 2012, um, done by the Alabama Ballet, of course, and I'm sure many of you will be seeing the production in just a few days. And I remembered thinking back to my childhood, how my parents um, couldn't afford to do a lot with us, or I thought they couldn't because there were four of us. And so we certainly did cut back on some things. I always thought we were poor, and they were like, no, we weren't poor. We just made you think we were, <laughs> which is very clever. But they saved up their money for the things that really mattered to them. And they would save up their money to be able to take all four of us to the symphony. Um, and every year, all four of us would get to go to the Nutcracker. I think after a little while, my brother would bow out. <laughs> but the three of us girls would get all dressed up in our finery, and then not only did we dress ourselves up, but um, we had these very special dolls who had very special clothes that had been lovingly made by my grandmother. Velvet, taffeta, things that we didn't get to wear very often. And we would dress our, we even had parasols for them and fancy hats. My grandmother was a wizard with, um, with a needle and thread. And so we would have these extravagant outfits for our dolls, and we would put them on our dolls, and then we'd go carrying our dolls with us to go and see the Nutcracker Ballet in downtown Pittsburgh. And 
I remember watching this ballet. You know, again, this ballet was based on a story. It is based on a story that was written at the beginning of the 19th century. And if you remember the plot line, you may or may not remember it, but it's a little bit trippy. It starts out, sorry to use a word like that, but it starts <laughs> out with, I'm going to, starts out with this family celebrating Christmas. And the main character, of course, is a little girl. Why do little girls everywhere love this story? It's because it's about us, isn't it? The main character, Clara, is given a very special gift by her godfather, who happens to be a magician. Um, and she's given multiple gifts. There are mechanized dolls that wake up and start to dance. Um, but the ultimate gift is the gift of a nutcracker. And um, there's a little bit of drama, and at the end of the night, um, she goes up to bed, but she sneaks back downstairs when everyone's asleep. And suddenly, the clock t talks, or begins to chime, and all of the dolls wake up. And then all of these mice start to come and attack all of the dolls, the toy soldiers, and um, the girl dolls, the nutcracker. Um, and the nutcracker himself, her favorite toy, is suddenly being attacked by the mouse king and Clara, this little girl rescues him. She throws her slipper at the mouse king, stunning him, and then that gives the nutcracker the moment to be able to stab him and um, kills the evil mouse king. So the victorious nutcracker then is transformed, of course, like all good romance stories. The victorious nutcracker is transformed into a handsome prince. And there begins the second act. He whisks Clara away into his kingdom. And as every child would hope, the kingdom of all kingdoms, for a child, of course, is the land of sweets. <laughs> In my research, I was really pleased to discover that the name for the land of sweets that they give, it's a mixture of, of a wonderful mixture of French and German. Confiturenberg. <laughs> Confiture is sweets in French. And um, any kind of berg in German is a city, right, or a land. So, and it reminded me of, it's like, Sweets in Nuremberg, Confiturenberg. I loved it. So she takes the, he takes her there to Confiturenberg, and he's been absent for so long. And in his place, the sugar plum fairy has been ruling, meeting out justice. Um, she has been his um, designated ruler in his absence. And there she welcomes them. All sorts of sweets dance around to welcome Clara to the kingdom and to celebrate their victory. So it's no surprise that in that mindset, when a sugar plum is something that takes so much to make, that's so valuable, that's so costly, that's so sweet, that's so deliciously perfect, the sugar plum would be the queen of sweets in Confiturenberg. So what is the role then? I'm going on one connection to another. What is the role of the sugar plum fairy in the story? She is a stand-in for the Nutcracker Prince ruling in his absence, a sense of power, but how feminine a power. There she is dancing in her tutu and tulle, in pink. Um, she's dancing and ruling, but it's all delightful. Um, there's even Tchaikovsky for his score, um, was so delighted to include a special instrument that he felt like he had been the one to discover, that he was anxious to get the ballet actually up and performed because he didn't want anyone else to steal his great instrument that he had discovered. And the instrument was called the Celesta. I have no idea what it's like, but I can hear it in the dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy. And he includes it only in that dance 
and it's called the Celesta because for him it was the musical version of heaven. He calls it heavenly music. It's an otherworldly tone that he includes for the dance of the sugar plum fairy. So there she is, perfectly spun perfection, a spun ballerina, spun candy, beauty incarnate. So that's the role of the sugar plum fairy in the Nutcracker. But for little Clara, the sugar plum fairy is a little bit more than that. Some people think that for Clara, that main character, the sugar plum fairy is her alter ego. The sugar plum fairy is the her, the she, that person that she wishes to grow up to be. Um, she is a vision of perfection. She's beautiful, delicate, sweet, lovely, feminine, and powerful. What little girl wouldn't want to be like that? The sugar plum fairy is the Clara that Clara wishes she could be. And so that leads me to ask, who is the you that you wish you were? What does your imagined, idealized self look like? Who is the sugar plum fairy that dances in your head? There's some possibilities for you. That really neat and clean person that you expect that one day you'll become. <laughs> the timely person that time after time you tell yourself, um, this time I'll be on time, that's me. As a child, um, I dreamt of becoming a choreographer, and maybe it was because of all of those ballets with the doll by my side, but I, would ha I actually would imagine steps in my head. Who was, who was the person that you wanted to be when you were a child, when you wanted to grow up? Um, is it that you think you or you'd like to be the woman who has so many friends? And so you imagine yourself when you're making friends, becoming that woman who has a lot of friends. Or you imagine yourself to be the good cook, and time after time you create something and you say, this is going to be really amazing. And then maybe when it's not as really amazing as you hope it will be, you're a little bit disappointed. Maybe you're the woman who says, well, I don't look all that, but I am funny. I am making people laugh. And they love it, and people like me because I can make them laugh. Who is the you that you strive to achieve? What's the niche that you're aiming for? I think of this, too, around Christmas time because that sugar plum fairy in my head gets ramped up. She puts on her Christmas clothes, and she gets to work. <laughs> is it that you imagine yourself around Christmas time having the tree that's up immediately after Thanksgiving? That's what I'd like to say to myself, but it doesn't happen. Or maybe you're the um, woman who makes the most amazing pound cake in the room. Then you know what your job is. Your job is to make it for the Christmas bazaar. But, um, or maybe you're the person who can make a five-course meal for 20 people. Or the person who's able to send out that Christmas card to 2,000 people and everybody loves seeing all your adorable children. Um, well, all of those things, for some of us, those things come effortlessly, and for most of us, they don't. If, it, if you're the person for whom that's effortless, then that is not your sugar plum fairy. That's not the thing you're chasing after in your own mind. Um, but for the rest of us who struggle to achieve those things, to achieve that image of that woman around Christmas time, that is our sugar plum fairy that we're chasing after. I think about this, it's around Christmas time, and I, this is just a little bit random, but here I go. One of my friends recently has said this, and I think it's really true. She said, it's not just children that believe in, in Santa Claus. Husbands believe in Santa Claus as well. <laughs> 
Santa Claus shouldn't be the man with the ho-ho-ho beard, but we should all get to wear little Santa Claus hats. Well, whatever it is that you are thinking about the most right now, whatever it is that you're distracted by in this moment, and you probably are, and that's okay, whatever it is that you're spending all of your time and money on this Christmas season, that just might be that elusive sugar plum fairy for you today. And for me, a little sidebar personally, this Christmas, I'm not thinking about the idealized Christmas Deborah. I usually am. I usually think I'm the Auntie Deb who gives all those amazing gifts to all of my 11 nephews and nieces, and they're the ones, they open it in the mail, and they just think, how did she know this is exactly what I want? That um, Christmas Deborah has been um, destroyed over the years because I've realized so far away, I have no idea what they're interested in. I go out, I spend all this time trying to figure out what they want, and I know that whatever I get them is just discarded on the floor along with all of the other gifts that they've gotten. I am no longer the Auntie Deb who gives the best gifts. No, instead, this Christmas, that Christmas um, sugar plum fairy in my head has been destroyed, and that's okay. This Christmas, there's a different sugar plum fairy dancing around in my head, because this Christmas, I'm thinking about Deborah the Snow Bride. You're going to make me cry. <laughs> um, you know, a lot of you know that I'm getting married on January 2nd. And for many months, long before we were engaged, it was really wrong. I was looking at wedding dresses online. <laughs> and so when it came time, I knew exactly which dress, oh, I knew exactly which 10 dresses I wanted to try on. <laughs> and it was actually pretty quick from there. So I, I wasn't dreaming, right now, I'm not dreaming about the wedding dress. I know what I look like in the wedding dress. It's great. Um, <laughs> but I've been dreaming about all of those things that need to happen surrounding the wedding. This last week, just on Black Friday, I, um, because there's a time crunch, I'm doing all my planning in you know, this heightened, narrow space of time. And on Black Friday, I was researching buying a rehearsal dress online because everything was on sale. So I thought, well, I'm going to buy five, and I'll try them on, and I'll return the ones that don't work. And I'm showing them to my fiancé, and saying which, because I can show him this, I think. I can't, he, doesn't, he hasn't seen the wedding dress, don't worry. But I'm showing him the rehearsal options. You know, he won't even know which one I pick. But I wanted to see, you know, what his reaction was. What do, what do you think of all of this? And it's just a sign that I'm marrying the right man because he looked at me, he was so confused. He was like, I like all of the clothes you wear. <laughs> In other words, <laughs> This sugar plum fairy that was dancing around in my head had nothing to do with the reality of the man that was sitting next to me who said, I just like you. I don't care what you wear. (laughs) Uh, The sugar plum fairy, this imagined me, this imagined you, is an imagined future that could be. And this imagined future that could be becomes diabolical when she pulls us out of engaging with all of the good and the less than good realities of what really is. I would say your imagined sugar plum fairy, your imagined self, whoever that self is, I'm going to say this first of all, she is not first and foremost a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to have an ideal, to look up to something and say, I really wish that ideal were a reality. That is actually something that's just human. That's not sinful. That impulse is something that every single human being does because we are human beings that are created in a world where there is actually a real ideal 
worth looking up to, worth hoping for and longing for. God himself is the real ideal in our world. He really exists, and he really is as perfect as we imagine him to be. He is the only thing, the only one, and Jesus Christ is the only thing, the only one that is as perfect, as truly beautiful as we imagine it to be. He is the true ideal. But the problem is that our sugar plum fairy, the one that matches our Clara, our Clara, that sugar plum fairy that's dancing around in our heads is not the same ideal as God's ideal for us. Isn't that the case? Honestly, this morning, sometimes I care more about how my hair looks or if I can get the lipstick to actually stay on my lips and not my teeth than with what's actually coming out of my mouth. And that, for me, is a very serious thing indeed. Serious for all of us, because don't you say those things that you wish you could just take back? The things that you say to the person that you love most and you want to um, rewind the tape and erase them from the record. Um, Our ideal is not usually God's ideal, his vision of perfection for us. And we see this in the second song of Isaiah, from Isaiah 55, verses 6 through 9. And this is one of those parts of Isaiah that we say frequently in church on Sunday morning. Um, And and the main part that I want to look at, we hear, Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them, and to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. The sugar plum fairy of the real ideal that actually exists in God himself is so much higher so much better than the sugar plum fairy dancing in our heads. Sin has touched every one of us in such a way that even our perception of what is actually perfect is skewed. And yet for us, um, when we look again to scripture, we have hope. And the Lord gives us hope in and through himself in making the ideal of himself very real to us in Jesus Christ, in the word made flesh. Um, And in 1 Corinthians, that famous passage on love that's really not about romantic love. It's sort of about romantic love and the fact that it's about all love. Um, It's about God's love for us first and foremost. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. We hear here about love, love lavished on the unworthy, straight from the cross of Jesus Christ, love that proceeds from the nature of the lover with a capital L and not from any attractiveness in the beloved. Love that is unconditional. Love that is one way. Love that is freely given to those who do not deserve it. 
and this perfection that we imagine, this perfection that we long for, um, even with our imperfect vision, um, God himself gives us his perfect vision of the world, his perfect vision even of ourselves, the selves that he desires for us to become in him. And the perfection will not arrive on this side of heaven. That perfect me will not be here until I see Jesus face to face. But there's hope in that. Do you see the hope that comes from that? The perfection will come at the end, the finished product, the real ideal, the actual sugar plum fairy version of myself will exist one day. And she will be far more beautiful than I can imagine in my flawed imagination. She will be far more righteous than I even think righteousness needs to be. She will be created fully in God's image and fully restored to the perfection of her perfect Savior, Jesus Christ. So while we live out our lives on this earth, our sight of things eternal is at best indistinct, imperfect. We repent of our unholy ideals, our imperfect sugar plum fairies, our sugar plum fairies that cause us to focus on the wrong things instead of the right things. But then we turn ourselves over to our Lord. Because the second thing is that our attempts at attaining this unattainable, this unattainable, this vision that we've created, even if it is closer and closer to the godly vision of what God would have for us, all of our attempts at striving towards this, and it's not bad necessarily to strive towards it, what becomes bad is when we escalate into a certain kind of mania, when we become unruly dictators over everyone else in our lives, trying to make the ideality into a reality through our own control. Um, the sugar plum fairy dancing in your head, she might not necessarily be um, something that you can, she's definitely not something you can actually attain. She might not be something that's moral. She might be the perfect hair or the perfectly set table. But this vision, whatever is dancing in your head, what this vision will do is this vision will operate upon you with the same amount of force as if she was perfectly righteous according to God's holy law. Because the ideal, our imperfect ideals, and God's perfect ideals operate in the same way upon us. The ideals kill us. The ideals show us how much we consistently fail to achieve them, the ideal of the perfect table and the ideal of the perfectly righteous one, the one who doesn't say anything mean to anyone else or cares more about what comes out of her mouth than what her hair looks like. And so we repent again in that um, I find that when the ideals that we looked up for, the dreams that we've dreamed that haven't come to pass, and I know for every one of us there are so many dreams that haven't come to pass, I don't know what your dream, again, I don't know what the sugar plum fairy is today for you, but it might be that you're really looking forward to all the children being back home just this Christmas, or that you're really looking forward to a special event like my special event, or you're really looking forward to that moment when your small child will open that one present that you know they really want to get, and you're just expecting there to be glee and gratitude and all sorts of things on their face that you're going to get to enjoy seeing. And they might not do that. They might open it and discard it. Um, one of the children might call um, and say, actually, Mom, I'm not able to come home this year for Christmas at the last minute. 
things might become as one of <laughs> my friends, actually my new best friend, my new, uh, my fiance says, I, he has this word, disastrophe. <laughs> <laughs> Your dream might end up being a disastrophe, but that's okay. That's actually better than if you have some illusion of having attained it. Because when the vision falls, when our perfect, the vision, that cloud of that perfect ideal self is dispelled, when the balloon is burst, when we wake up from the dream that we've been dreaming to the reality of who we actually are, this right there, that is the place where real hope is born, where real eternal hope in the only one with a capital O who can fulfill that ideal. Um, becomes uh, born and is generated. We see from the Psalms that this place of brokenness, the burst balloon, the disastrophe, um, the crushed dreams, these are the places where God meets us and where God picks us up and brushes us off and lavishes us once again with his love. Just from the Psalms, we hear, A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and saves the crushed in spirit. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Um, And even um, as Jesus says about himself, quoting Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. And as Jesus says about himself, again, that a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. In the wreckage of our failure to live up to our ideal, we repent. We see our failure to live up not just to our own ideal, but to God's ideal for us. And then at that low place, suddenly we're free. We're free to have that hope that one day there will be actually a real ideal me and a real ideal you formed perfectly in the image of our real ideal Savior, the flesh and blood righteous one who came to live and who came to die to make the ideal a reality. And so getting to that heavenly Jerusalem, getting to the dance of the sugar plum fairy, the real sugar plum fairy, the real perfect us is not our job. It's not our job. It's God's job. Uh, As we hear in Scripture, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. It is God who is the one who works all of the beautiful and true and righteous things in us. Even if they're simply just the beautiful and true things that we put around our table, He is the one who makes those works come about in our hearts and in our lives. Going back to that second song of Isaiah again that we say so much in worship on Sunday mornings, the song continues in verse 10 to say, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's own holy word, his word preached, his word read, his word inwardly digested, 
is the, is the agent that brings about this change, is the agent that makes us who we are in Him. And we're just along for the ride. We get to sit back and relax, to float along on the river of his love for us. Again, with the words of St. Paul, this assurance, which he was reassuring to the Philippians in chapter 1, which is a word for us today, too, this this morning. Uh, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So let your ideals be popped, wrecked, broken, early, often. For me, I feel like it happens every day. Oh, yeah, this is the me with flyaway hair. This is the me who needs a haircut or who, you know, walked out and didn't realize I I didn't bring the lint brush and it's going to be okay. It's okay. So we pray, God, let your ideals be my ideals. God, break my ideals. Give me the true vision of the true sugar plum fairy, your ideal for me, and then let me sit back and enjoy and watch you at work in my life as you make the ideal a reality. Let's pray. Lord God, we offer up to you indeed those things that are chasing us down, the ideals in our heads that are not your ideals that are going to kill us, that are just going to wreck our sense of self um, that devastate us sometimes. Oh Lord, we lift them up to you. We offer the broken pieces of them to you and we trust in your real ideal, that real vision of who you are making us to be in Jesus Christ because of his great love for us, because of your great love for us manifest at the cross and because of the power of the resurrection by which all the broken things are restored again, not just glued back together, but made completely new. And so we pray, now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will and see his vision, working in you that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.